from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, October Halloween extravaganza. All of this month, we will be having a bit of fun with the topics for the podcast, so I hope you enjoy. Special thanks to my patrons who didn't vote for these Halloween episodes, but still support me and my work, and I thank you so much for that. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. So today's podcast will be about the curse of King Tut. This one was suggested by a lovely listener and I couldn't resist. So it's going to be a little different than my normal content, but I certainly hope that you enjoy. So let's get started. King Tutankhamun, with a few different ways to pronounce that name, was a child pharaoh, as we all know. Let's get a little bit of family background info. So Yuya and Thuya were Tut's great-grandparents. Yuya came from the town of Hakmim against the Nile River, roughly a little over three hours north from where Yuya's great-grandson would be laid to rest in the Valley of the Kings near Luxor. It is likely that Yuya held estates and that he was a priest of the Egyptian god Min, who was the chief god of the area. The god Min was a part of an ancient Egypt religion, a god of fertility and harvest, the embodiment of the masculine principle. He was also worshipped as the lord of the eastern desert. His cult following originated in pre-dynastic times, or the fourth millennium BCE. So Thuya, Tut's great-grandmother, also held important religious titles, in addition to the title of the royal mother of the great wife of the king. She was also a member of the royal family. Yuya was not quite five feet five inches tall and lived to be an old man, at least for those times, between 50 to 60 years old. It is also believed that Thuya, too, lived into her 50s to maybe early 60s when she died, and she wasn't even five feet tall. Their mummies have been located, and they were found to both have white hair and had been very carefully and skillfully taken care of after their death. Yuya had been a man of importance, a key advisor to the pharaoh. Thuya was a very powerful woman in her time as well, well respected, and held many fancy titles. Together, it is known that they had at least two children and a possible third, but it is their daughter Tai who we will follow, though I need to note that Yuya and Thuya possibly had a son named Ai, which will be important later. Tai went on to marry the pharaoh Amenhotep III, who had been made a pharaoh when he was between the ages of 6 to 12 years old. A child leader, really. 
I wasn't immediately able to find at what age they got married, but Tai was his first wife, given the title Great Royal Wife, though he had a few other wives later. But never mistake that Tai was considered nearly equal to her husband and tended to political affairs while he was pursuing his passions with regards to architecture and art. He had an absolutely mind-blowingly huge religious temple and a death complex built that was beyond anything people from that time had seen, I guess outside of maybe the pyramids. He was good to his people, and in return, the people loved him, and Egypt really flourished during his reign. So Tai and Amenhotep had at least seven children and possibly more. The child we are following is a son that they named Amenhotep IV, but we know him as Akhenaten. Now, Akhenaten, as much as the people loved and revered his father, well, he was not. If you are at all interested in Egyptian history, Akhenaten was the pharaoh depicted with the, you know, unusually elongated face and exaggerated nose and chin, which had led to speculation that he might have suffered from a specific syndrome called Marfan syndrome. It is an inherited syndrome affecting the connective tissues in the body, and this wouldn't necessarily be out of the question. I mean, he did come from a long lineage of inbreeding, as they believed this was key to keeping their royal bloodlines pure. And there was an older brother in line for the throne, but he died before Amenhotep did, so Akhenaten was the next in line. So Akhenaten was the leader that decided to shake up generations and generations of worshipping many gods to only worshipping one, which is called monotheism. The one god he wanted them to worship was called Aten, which is depicted as the rays of the sun coming away from the red-orange disk with hands on the ends of the rays. This was kind of connected to the sun god Ra. So naturally, the people who had been worshipping many gods for centuries were pissed, and he was labeled a heretic and a rebel. He forever changed the course of history in that respect, as it is thought that he was the first to really introduce monotheism to the masses that would later usher in the idea of Christianity and so on, which I find super fascinating personally. Also, he didn't work like his father did to keep, you know, friendly relations with the other surrounding nations. He actually caused a lot of drama, and there's more to that, but it doesn't really pertain to this story. Now, Akhenaten married the famous Nefertiti, and she was his great royal wife, first wife, like her mother-in-law before her, Tai. And I'm sure most of us are aware of her reputation for being just a, you know, stunning and intelligent woman. And like his parents, Akhenaten and Nefertiti were actually close and loved each other very much. Together, they had six daughters, but apparently no sons. Keep in mind that Akhenaten had other wives. Now, as the story goes, a leader from another nation sent one of his daughters to marry Akhenaten's father, and when Amenhotep III died, Akhenaten married this girl as one of his lesser wives. Gross, but true. Akhenaten died after leading Egypt for 17 years. And side note, his burial chamber or tomb was raided and the sarcophagus was actually destroyed. It's believed he might have been reburied, so to speak, in the Valley of the Kings, but none of the mummies there, 
as far as I could find or as far as this recording, have been positively identified as his. So, you know, hopefully they find him someday. The point is, is that he was not a bad man so much as that he was utterly devoted to his monotheism and just didn't really want to be bothered with the politics of it, if that makes sense. So again, he and Nefertiti did not have any sons. It is widely believed that, while there were two very brief successors to the throne, Akhenaten had married one of his very own sisters as a lesser wife, and this union produced Tutankhamun, or King Tut, as we know him. His name was originally Tutankhaten when he took the throne at just nine years old. Since his father was dead, his advisors, one of which was his grandmother Tai's brother Ai, with the overwhelming approval of the population of Egypt, convinced him to abandon his father's one god or monotheism practice of worshipping Aten. They begged him to reinstate the worship of the familiar multiple gods and Amun-Ra, and Tut agreed, changing his name to Tutankhamun in commemoration of this change back to polytheism, and this is the name that we know him as, of course. So Tutankhamun was very much considered a good leader because he very quickly was able to restore balance back after the absolute chaos his father had created, trying to force the whole region into changing their religious beliefs that have been held, as we said, for many centuries. He issued a decree restoring the temples, images, personnel, and privileges of the old gods, and the people were quite happy. He was ridiculously wealthy during his reign as well, but because of the generations of incest, he did not live a comfortable, healthy life. In fact, it is believed that he endured serious pain his entire short life. So, he had a clubbed left foot, meaning he walked on the outside of his foot, which was curled inward. Some of the bones in the toes of that foot were dying from a degenerative disease, and the swelling and inflammation would have been very painful. This explains the over 100 walking sticks and canes in his burial tomb. He also had an intense overbite. His spine was curved, and it is highly likely that he suffered from epilepsy. So you can imagine the constant pain that he would have endured. So shortly after taking the throne, and in the grand tradition of his ancestors, Tutankhamun married Akasinamon, who was his half-sister from his father and one of his stepmothers. I guess you could say that. It's actually thought that her mother was Nefertiti. And some sources say that Akasinamon was once married to her own father, but I couldn't find out if that was 100% true or not. Regardless, Tutankhamun, at the tender age of nine, married his half-sister, who was thought to be about 12 years old at the time of the marriage. So in his later teens, he and his wife had had two daughters, but both had been stillborn. Some say the babies were twins, but the girls are different sizes, so it is highly unlikely that they were twins. One of the babies is believed to have been born after only five months' gestation. Her eyes were still fused shut, and she had no eyebrows, no eyelashes, but she did have the beginnings of the downy, kind of soft hair on her little head. The other was believed to have made it to about 36 weeks or eight months' gestation before being stillborn. 
This would have, no doubt, been a tragic loss to the couple, and it is believed that Aka Cinnamon was the only wife Tutankhamun ever took. And then, to add insult to injury, not long after the second baby had been born dead, Tutankhamun would also lose his life. He died at just 19 years old, having ruled for nearly 10 years. Now, one of the most compelling points of evidence surrounding Tutankhamun's death is the presence of a fracture at his kneecap, which doesn't have any signs of healing, indicating that it happened shortly before his death. There was also the presence of a form of malaria in his mummy, which we know could have or would have contributed to his demise. Some have said that he was murdered due to a bone fragment that was found in his skull, but this was most likely from the mummification process, and most all experts do not believe he was murdered. I mean, let's remember, right? So he was loved because of his reinstating of the old gods, as they say, and restoring old religious buildings and artwork. So it is thought that the malaria and the fact that the knee fracture wasn't healed both contributed to his death. So when he died, his grandmother's brother and one of his closest advisors, I, that I told you about earlier, took the throne. I also took it upon himself to marry his grandnephew's wife, Aka Cinnamon. He married Tut's wife. Tutankhamun was again entombed in the Valley of the Kings, and that tomb was virtually, kind of, left undisturbed, though there were a couple of break-ins not long after his death, and the tomb had to be resealed but stayed that way for over 3,000 years. So in 1922, a British archaeologist by the name of Howard Carter financially backed by the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, was leading his benefactor as well as a team of excavators in the Valley of the Kings when they unearthed and discovered the steps leading down to the still-sealed opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. After seven years of finding really next to nothing, Carter had located this tomb. Part of the reason for the holdup could be blamed on World War I, but I digress. They chiseled through and made a very small opening through the door as Carter struck a match and pushed his arm through the hole to get a look at the inside. Both men felt a bit of warm air that had been trapped inside the boy king's tomb for over 3,000 years as the flame of the match flickered. Howard Carter said, quote, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues and gold everywhere, the glint of gold. For the moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the other standing by, I was struck dumb with amazement, and when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, "'Can you see anything?' It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things, end quote. Inside the tomb presented really the most well-preserved tomb to be found, period. In the outer chamber, they found a number of dismantled chariots, a wooden bust of the boy king, a pile of furniture, baskets of fruit, and boxes of meat, two life-size statues of Tutankhamun, 
which was thought to be sort of standing guard just outside of the burial chamber and funerary beds with animal heads. They also found an alabaster lotus chalice, a painted box that showed the boy in a battle that he most likely wasn't actually fighting in, quite a number of various articles of clothing and cosmetics like eye-coal, you know, wines and oils. And of course, outside of precious stones, there was gold, gold everywhere. There was just thousands of artifacts just outside of the burial chamber. Now, there is some debate as to when the actual burial chamber was breached. It is said that it wasn't opened until February, a few months later, though other sources state it was opened in November. But regardless, the burial chamber where the boy king was entombed was more sparsely decorated with beautiful painted murals of Tutankhamun dressed in all white, looking very regal and healthy and strong. There had been small, ornate statues and small kind of cutouts in the walls. His tomb was surprisingly, well, rather simple. There had been another chamber cut off the side of his burial chamber, but it was plain and bare. One gets the feeling that perhaps his sudden death had caused them to have to halt what they were doing with the extra chamber to prepare him for mummification. I mean, you get what I'm saying. But the takeaway was that the burial chamber itself was far, far less elaborate than other pharaohs entombed in the Valley of the Kings. The very scenes painted on the walls were described as very abbreviated. There were paint drip marks below the painted walls, which are a strong indicator that they had to move fast. As hieroglyphs were finally decoded and translated in the early 19th century, it had been known that there was in fact a curse of the pharaohs, also known as the mummy's curse. It is a curse alleged to be cast upon anyone who disturbs the mummy of an ancient Egyptian, especially a pharaoh. This curse, which does not differentiate between thieves and archaeologists, is claimed to cause bad luck, illness, or death. A tomb of one of the other pharaohs states, quote, any ruler who shall do evil or wickedness to this coffin, may Heman, a local deity, not accept any goods he offers, and may his heir not inherit, end quote. And yet another tomb contains an inscription, quote, As for all men who shall enter this, my tomb, impure, there will be judgment, an end shall be made for him, I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself onto him. End quote. And yet another one stated, quote, Curses be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. End quote. Of course, no one took these threats particularly seriously because... I mean, quite frankly, most people don't believe in the power of curses. It was assumed that these were to deter the deeply spiritual people who were tomb raiders and grave robbers from breaking the seal and stealing artifacts from the tombs. But perhaps people should have heeded the warnings. So, remember Mr. Herbert, the Earl of Carnivon? After the discovery of the tomb, he took some artifacts home with him and even gave them out as gifts to his friends back in England. Tisk tisk. 
It was said that just after he breached the tomb, he was bitten by a mosquito on the cheek that got infected and wouldn't heal. It turned to sepsis and he died a few months later. Some scholars say that he might have accidentally ingested anthrax spores purposefully placed in the tomb by ancient Egyptian priests to again thwart off thieves. So another man by the name of George J. Gould, a wealthy American who visited the tomb after it was unsealed, died only one month after Carnivon. He happened to be in the French Riviera and had developed a fever and died. Then just a few years after the excavation, a man by the name of A.C. Mace, who was a member of Howard Carter's excavation team, died after suffering pleurisy and pneumonia during those years after he was in the tomb. And then Howard's secretary, a man named Richard Bethel, died a year after Mr. Mace. He was found lying in a bed deceased, and it was thought that he had been smothered. So Lord Westbury, Richard Bethel's father, then fell seven floors to his death in 1930, apparently from the room in which he kept Tutankhamun tomb artifacts given to him by his son. And then Howard himself died some years after breaking the seal of Tutankhamun's tomb from Hodgkin's disease, or cancer of the blood. A man by the name of Sir Archibald Douglas Reed also died soon after X-raying the mummy in London. And yet another man, James Henry Breasted, who was an American archaeologist, lived until 1935, but died of an infection after his final trip to Egypt regarding that tomb. In 1925, the archaeologist and anthropologist Henry Field, working with Breasted in Egypt at the time, claimed to have seen a paperweight given to Carter's friend Bruce Ingram, which gave evidence of an actual curse. The paperweight consisted of a mummified hand with an inscription, quote, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. End quote. Soon after receiving the gift, Ingram's house burned down, and when it was rebuilt, it was then destroyed by flood. British archaeologist Hugh Evelyn White, who worked at the tomb, died by suicide two years after the tomb had been opened. He reportedly left a note in which he wrote, quote, I have succumbed to a curse, end quote. Prince Ali Kamal Fami Bey of Egypt, who visited the excavation site of the tomb, was shot dead by his wife less than a year later. Sir Lee Stack, the governor general of Sudan, who was a British army officer, was assassinated in Cairo in 1924 and is listed as another victim of the curse. So stories were recounted that Carter had sent a runner with a message to the house he was living in during the excavation, and there they had discovered Carter's pet canary dead in its cage in the mouth of a cobra. That story was recounted by none other than Egyptologist James Henry Breasted. Arthur Weigall, who had been appointed to replace Carter as Chief Inspector of Antiquities in 1905, said that it was a royal cobra which had killed the canary, the serpent seen on royal headdress of the pharaohs, and which was also a protective god. Weigel also claimed that this event happened on the very day the tomb was broken into. 
He also claimed that in February 1923, when the tomb was opened again, and when he saw Lord Carnarvon was all smiles, laughing and joking, that he said to a reporter, quote, I give him six weeks to live, end quote. And, you know, of course, we already know Carnarvon died two months later. So, was there an actual Pharaoh's curse, a mummy's curse? It is interesting that there indeed seemed to be a questionable number of sudden deaths after the tomb was opened, to be sure. The headline on the newspaper, the Detroit News, stated, quote, Tomb digging to go on despite curse of Egypt. And, of course, the curse had been known long before Tutankhamun's tomb was opened. They knew that there was a mummy or a pharaoh's curse. So have there been other deaths or at the very least strange happenings surrounding other tombs of high-ranking ancient Egyptians? Now again, hieroglyphs were not officially deciphered until the early 19th century, so reports of curses before this time were simply perceived as bad luck associated with the handling of mummies and other artifacts from tombs. So for an example, in 1699, Louis Penicher, who wrote an account in which he recorded how a Polish traveler bought two mummies in Alexandria and embarked on a sea journey with the mummies in the cargo hold. The traveler was alarmed by recurring visions of two specters, and the very stormy seas did not subside until the mummies were thrown overboard. Another young archaeologist excavating at Kam Abu Bilo had to transport several artifacts from a dig site. His cousin died on that very day. His uncle died on its first anniversary, and on the third anniversary, his aunt died. So years later, when he excavated the tombs of the builders of the pyramids at Giza, he encountered the curse. Quote, all people who enter this tomb, who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it, may the crocodile be against them in water, and snakes against them on land. May the hippopotamus be against them in water, the scorpion on land. End quote. So we see that unfortunate circumstances and even death around people who were directly or indirectly linked to disturbing Egyptian tombs, were occurring before King Tut's tomb was touched. But it is generally agreed that the curse isn't a real thing. Could there be something about the air quality of the tombs or some other environmental factor that could possibly explain the curse? My first logical question was, were the tombs airtight? So the chances of that are close to zero. And yet, while opening up a chamber in a tomb in Egypt, excavators noted a hiss and slight puff of air when they opened it up. This meant there was a pressure difference between the inside and outside, which in turn suggested an airtight chamber. So when they found another sealed chamber, they went to great lengths to try to get a pure air sample from it, but that one had not been airtight, so the air quality was pretty much the same. I found where an archaeologist had written about this very thing, and he said, quote, Think about what happens in a tomb, what is put into a tomb, and what questions the air in an old tomb might be used to address. Decomposing corpse or corpse embalmed with indeterminate chemicals that may or may not be volatile and grave goods, some inorganic, some organic, end quote. 
As far as any discernible smells immediately after opening a tomb, scientists found aldehydes and long-chain hydrocarbons, indicative of bee wax, trimethylamine associated with dried fish, and other aldehydes common in fruits. So, doesn't sound too unpleasant, really. But since most all of the tombs weren't particularly airtight, then what else could someone be exposed to that could have been in the tombs? Jennifer Wegner, an Egyptologist at the University of Pennsylvania Museum in Pennsylvania, said, quote, When you think of Egyptian tombs, you have not only dead bodies, but foodstuffs, meats, vegetables, and fruits interred for the trip to the hereafter. It certainly may have attracted insects, molds, bacteria, and those kinds of things. The raw material would have been there thousands of years ago, end quote. And according to National Geographic, recent laboratory studies have revealed that some ancient mummies do indeed carry mold, including at least two potentially dangerous species, Aspergillus niger, which is black mold, and Aspergillus flavus. These molds can cause allergic reactions ranging from congestion to bleeding in the lungs, and the toxins can be particularly harmful for people with weakened immune systems. Some tomb walls may be also covered with respiratory-assaulting bacteria like Pseudomonas, which can cause pneumonia, infections in the body after suffering some kind of wound or surgery, and blood infections, as well as Staphylococcus, and I think we're all pretty familiar with what a staph infection is. And we know that there are some who died that had been to or held artifacts from the tomb who also suffered later from pneumonia, blood infections, and infected wounds, etc. So, did these people die from an ancient Egyptian curse? Or did they possibly suffer side effects and their untimely demise from exposure to whatever might have been sealed inside the tombs for thousands of years? Perhaps the peripheral people around those people who had been there when the tomb was opened simply experienced some serious but random bad luck. You know, who's to say? But I'd love to know what you guys think. Leave me a comment, please. I like to read them. Or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. Or you can come join the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page that was created by a beloved listener. But either way, let me know what you think. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else. But you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.